All right, so do you feel like you're on the road yet? Have we uh, gotten that point across that we are moving, traveling, we're on a journey? It's good to have you here this morning, and I'm uh, just, it's a joy to me to get to be here with you. Uh, my name is Derek. I'm one of our pastors here, but you didn't see me for a period of time because right after Easter, Pastor Ty and our deacon board blessed me and my family with the opportunity to uh, do a three-month sabbatical where I wasn't punching in the time card here at the office. And uh, you know, when you only work one day out of the week, people give you a hard time for taking any time off, but uh, it was an incredible time for my family. If you have a Bible, please open up to Psalm 127. If you do not, I'm hoping we have a, a couple ushers in the back that might be able to bring you one. They'll be thinking about it. All right. But please open to Psalm 127. The book of Psalms is about right in the middle of your Bible to get us there. But to start off that sabbatical, the, the day after Easter, we left at, I thought we were going to leave at 5 in the morning. We left at 2 in the afternoon because we were just packing. <laughs> And we left on a 20-day road trip that took us a grand total of 3,500 miles. We went up to almost the Canadian border with Washington and back up to the San Juan Islands. We did some camping along the way up. On the way back, we have four kids, minivan, with the camper top on top. It was about 50 hours of drive time total, and it was awesome. And the soundtrack for that trip uh, happened to be something called, uh, well, it was the soundtrack from a movie called Moana. Anyone familiar with that? 3,500 miles, 20 days. Did I mention 50 hours in the car? It was pretty much all Moana all the time. And it wasn't just Moana because it was in, you were using Pandora to pick the songs for us. So it was also Aladdin. It was also Lion King. It was also Beauty and the Beast. So I had my wonderful fill of Disney songs for that entire trip. And you know what's great? I survived it. It didn't do me in to listen to the songs that my kids wanted to hear that entire time. And now, every time I hear, Moana, make way, make way, it makes me think of these great times we had on this trip. It was a lot of fun, but they were, Moana was my unlikely songs for the way home. Well, Songs for the Way Home is the title of this series where we're looking at these specific psalms in your Bible that each one says a song of a sense or a psalm of ascents. And these are the songs that the pilgrims who are heading towards Jerusalem in order to worship their God at the temple would sing. They're put together in order for that purpose. And still to this day, they are songs that in our journey, really life is like this road trip. And you don't always get to pick all the people that are in the car with you. That's part of the beauty of the church, right? We don't pick all the people sitting next to us. And as we're heading on this trip, we have these songs from God that are there to encourage us and to challenge us and to inspire us in our journeys. They are our songs for the way home. So let us read this song, and we'll read it in its entirety. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. It says, Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, like the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
Now, at first glance, this, this psalm seems like an unlikely song for travel. I mean, it's talking about construction. It's talking about the safety of the city. It's even talking about children. If you've been on a long road trip with children, not every moment do they feel like a blessing. But even when you boil down all these components together and realize that their common theme, the common activity here is work, well, work feels like kind of a funny thing to sing about when you're heading towards the temple to worship. But I think maybe that's the point. You see, on our road trips, once the kids have fallen asleep and we get to change the the station from Moana to something else, we also, my wife and I, take the opportunity in those moments to talk the big talks, to think about the, the, the deeper things and to have real meaningful discussion about things that we don't always have the time. Questions like, how are we doing? How are the kids? What are we doing? Where's life going and what does God have for us next? Now to you, the, the idea of forcing a sort of existential crisis that those questions can bring about on a road trip maybe doesn't sound like the smartest idea. But at the same time, these are the times that we hit those big questions because when you're traveling, you, you have this opportunity to step back and away from just the monotony and the, the day-to-day urgencies that so fill our lives that we don't even think, why are we doing what we're doing? Now this morning, uh, We're not on a trip together, and I hope the sermon doesn't feel like hours on the road. But I want us all to take a step back together and to ask some important questions, starting with what I think is the the big question of this entire psalm, and that is, what does our work have to do with God? And by work, I want to be very clear that I don't just mean what you get paid for. I mean the energy and ideas that you expend in order to accomplish something. You might get paid for it, you might not. But everyone is doing some sort of work. And maybe this morning, you can take enough of a step back to realize it doesn't really sit well with me. And so we want to know, is that as a businessman or as a waiter, as a a teacher, as a salesperson, as a chairmaker, as someone who's retired, as someone who's a student, as a stay-at-home mom or even unemployed, what does your work have to do with God. And here's the big idea that I think this psalm brings about, and so I hope that you will see it in there too, and that's this, that God takes our work from futility to fertility. He takes it from futility to fertility. He takes it from meaninglessness to being meaningful and multiplying. And so let's look again at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The psalmist is beginning with these two just very ordinary pictures. They're guys laying brick. They're they're building a house. And then someone else, a, a soldier likely, on the city wall at night watching. Just watching in case someone were to try to invade. Now, these two areas of work take us back to the core of what work has always been. God places Adam into the garden. The first thing he commands him to do is to work the garden and to keep the garden. This is before anything got messed up by sin. There was work to produce and to protect, to cultivate and conserve, to build and to keep watch. And this was a good work. 
But through Adam's rebellion, his sin against God, new ideas crept in and they spoiled this work. And they're the ideas that still plague us. And they're these. First, that we can work on our own, in our own power. And second, that we can work for our own glory. It's like the story I read about a man who uh, needed to move his office, and so he left his big, heavy desk for the last thing, and his four-year-old son wanted to come along, and he wants to help move the desk. He's like, all right, you can help move the desk. And so they're moving it together, moving it inch by inch, and it's heavy, and they're pushing it, and the four-year-old's just grunting and groaning and giving it all he can. Eventually, he looks up at his desk and says, can you move out of my way? I'm moving a desk. Because he thought he was the one moving it all along. And here the psalmist counters that idea by showing us that work done apart from God and for ourselves is in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house. Without God, work is futile. Now that's a strong statement. And it's made in the Bible as just a matter of fact. And if, if you're here this morning with us as, as a guest and you're not sure about who this Jesus is and, and you don't follow him or believe in him, first of all, I'm really glad you're here. Hope you know we, we welcome you to come alongside and to, to be here as we sing songs out loud, which you don't really do anywhere else but a concert, right? And as we worship this risen man named Jesus, but I'm glad you're here, and, and I recognize that if you don't buy into this worldview, then you're probably going to disagree with that statement. You might think that a, that a home built by a, a non-Christian is just as good as by a Christian. In fact, it might even be better, depending on the training and the experience. And you might say that, well, a, a police officer watching our streets is, is a good thing, whether or not they believe in God. And they would have a point, wouldn't they? I mean... Before you enter a building, do you check the architect on record and go ask him about his salvation, or do you walk in trusting that it's been built according to code and that it'll stand? I mean, some of you might even have been in a hotel in Vegas. You walked in, you walked out, didn't fall on you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning. But the point is not whether the result of the work functions, which to speak biblically about any work is to say that God is the one who did it, like the desk moving. It's not about just whether the work functions, but the point is whether or not the work is meaningfully connected to God, his desires, his glory. You see, the house may stand, but was it done in a way where the work has ultimate meaning? To put it another way, our work is futile if we do it by ignoring the reality of the one who gives work value and meaning in the first place and again if you're you're not with this on this level you might be thinking ultimate meaning that's that's some pretty heavy terms to throw out there what can this book this bible tell me about what is meaningful and what is not and as much as you might want to fight this the psalmist weaves in a picture that i think you'll find strikes even closer to our hearts and to our experience and that's the part in verse 2. He says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. How many of you have eaten that bread? It doesn't taste good. We 
feel like we're getting close to the, to the goals that we want to accomplish in life, and we think, man, if I just start getting in a little bit earlier, if I stay a few extra nights late at the office or weekends or take on this side job, and if I get just a little bit more money than I get the, the things I need, or I can get into that house, or I can get that security, and then, and then, and then, and then I'll be okay. And all the while, we are giving ourselves to our work, just slightly aware of these rising levels of anxiety and dissatisfaction and worry. We might earn something from this work. It does say there's bread, but it's tainted. And here's the problem. Work and success promise the good life. Promise satisfaction, promise uh, enduring meaning. And so we begin to make sacrifices in order to get at those promises. And work then becomes some sort of God, this, this idol that we bow down to, and we are its worshipers. But as one author writes, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. But you weren't made to worship work. You were made for something more. You were made to be captivated by the all-satisfying glory of the Lord God Almighty. And so when you work or you build for anyone else, let it be yourself, your family, or others, you build in vain. You're missing out on doing what you were made for. And so the efforts you expend, though you earn bread for today, ultimately its end is futility. But God has something better in mind for your work. God has something better in mind for your life. Without God, work is futile. So join with God. So join with God. If, if you're a Christian, then it's likely this morning, if things are starting to sort of feel close to home, that you need to change how you think about work. You need to stop separating your faith from your work, and you need to know that God cares deeply about what you do and how you do it and who you do it for. But again, if you're not a Christian here, if you're not a follower of Christ, I need you to know this, that the foundation of meaningful work joined with God is only made possible through the work of Jesus Christ that he already accomplished for us. You see, you can't talk about working with God when you're separated from God. The beginning of that path to have that broken down is to turn away from the life that you've lived for yourself, which the Bible calls sin and then trusting Jesus that he's taking care, of, uh, taking care of the rest. This is part of the good news that we call the gospel, that Jesus not only redeems us, he buys us out of that futility, but he also redeems our work. Without God, work is futile, so join with God. Now, I grew up uh, sitting in the pews uh, with my parents, and my dad was a firefighter, and I loved him, and I loved what he did, but I saw what was going on in church, and I saw these missionaries, and I thought, oh, those are the people God likes. And I saw the pastor, and I was like, oh, those are the people God is proud of, and he likes. And I thought, everyone else, well, those are kind of ordinary jobs, second tier. And it took me as I grew up and matured, and I got to know missionaries, and as I got to know pastors, and most importantly, as I got to know my Bible, to realize that that is terribly horribly inadequate thinking. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave the very first people the vocation, the calling to fill the earth and subdue it. Scholars will call this section our cultural mandate, that people were created to develop society, to cultivate our world and people in God's names as his representatives, an act that brings glory to the one who created us. And because it's done dependent on God and for God's glory, it means that God, who is the ultimate reality, actually bestows meaning upon us as we do this work. And Psalm 127 affirms this. It says that God builds and God protects, but also says that he wants us to join him in the work, which is to say that God gives our work ultimate meaning. To read verse one again, but in, in the positive, if we kind of flip it around, it's to say, if the Lord builds the house, then those who build it labor meaningfully. If the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake meaningfully. And so when we join into God's work, which is a word here that doesn't mean ministry, as we often use it, but rather the work of developing and maintaining and preserving and protecting people in our world for his glory. When we join into that work for his glory, we join into a lasting work. This is how God talks about it in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A few verses later, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love that. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, when you build homes or watch over cities or teach math or clean up a mess or invest funds or prune bushes or serve food or make chairs with God in mind and for his glory, then that makes what we did truly meaningful. Or I think pastor and author Tim Keller puts it incredibly well here, so I put it up on the screen for you as well. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. They can matter forever because God matters forever. And so to paraphrase Dorothy Sayers, we don't just tell carpenters to be good and to come to church on Sundays. We tell them, make good tables for God's glory. For all work received is a calling from the Lord and work dependent upon him and for his glory. God gives lasting and ultimate meaning. But God also gives our work personal meaning. We see this if we actually complete reading verse 2. It says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. We read that before. But then he says this, For he gives to his beloved sleep. Juxtaposed to this frenetic and anxious driven work is the one who says, 
God's actively working, I can join him. And at my limits, I can rest. And this is the rest of satisfaction because working with God brings deep meaning. This is the rest of peace because of what is done for God can never be taken away. And finally, it's the rest of actual physical sleep as part of a healthy rhythm of work and rest. Rather than living in anxious disdain of our physical limitations, God desires that we embrace this gift of sleep because when we do so, we recognize that we are not God for he's the only one who does not sleep. And we have opportunity to trust him with the things that are beyond our control. God makes work meaningful, both ultimately and personally. And so the application here is to, to work with God for his glory. And what I want to do is, is give you a few questions, but don't feel the need to write them down. They're on the back of your bulletin. But just to, to listen and begin to process as we start this discussion, to ask what skill has God given me by which I can bless the world? What am I good at? What am I passionate about? What will someone pay me to do? And if, if not, can they pay me to do something else so that I can have time to do that as well? Or secondly, how can I do it in a rhythm that exemplifies trust in God and health in me, that keeps God's glory and my dependence on him in focus and doesn't turn my work into an idol that sucks the life right out of me? And third, who can I come alongside to do this, help them to do it well? Pastor Ty last week talked about how our journey with God is personal, but it's not private. So how can we help the other pilgrims along in their journey? How can I encourage someone else in their vocation to do it for God's glory? God makes work meaningful, so work with God for his glory. But the psalmist isn't finished yet. He gives us another picture of work, one that extends the importance of our work even beyond meaning. This is verses three through five. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So now you finally, reading that, you go, okay, this is why Pastor Derek gets to teach on this. He's, he's got the four kids, his oldest is only six, his youngest is 14 months. He's just kind of baby crazy right now in his stage of life. And uh, I mean, we've, we've heard it all. Our, uh, we're just shy of a basketball team if we were to keep going, or we've taken the be fruitful and multiply a little too far, a little too, too much to heart. And I thought, because of this verse, maybe our minivan needs to be, maybe it needs a name. Maybe it should be called The Quiver. What do you guys think? Is that, <laughs> is that a good idea? But this, this passage does have some important things to say about kids. So I do want to look at just that idea for a moment, but only briefly, because I want to make sure we get back to its intended purpose as a picture that helps us understand how God can make work fertile, not just people. So what does it say about kids? Well, first of all, children are a gift from God. He says it's a, they are a heritage from the Lord. In the same way that God builds the home and protects the city, children are God's creation and gifting to us. Ultimately, kids aren't just products of their parents. They're not just DNA. They're not just a result of random chance or passing circumstances. All children are given from God as gifts. And so there's two important implications. First of all, that we are responsible to God for these children. We're responsible to them. They're not simply to be procreated, but cultivated and protected. 
And secondly, we're to raise them for God's glory, which means we're not raising them for our glory or our name or even so that they can make a name for themselves. But they're for God's glory because they're a gift from God. Secondly, children are valuable. Now, I said the word valuable, but if you'll notice when you were listening, you heard costly. Now, I know what's going on in your brain. And they are. They, they are costly. A study from 2012 says that a child born that year is expected to cost their parents over $230,000 over the next 17 years. That was a staggering figure because I had a child born in 2012 and 2010 and 2014 and 2016. <laughs> so I think it only goes up. Children may be costly, but the point of the psalmist here is that they are valuable. He says, the fruit of the womb a reward. This speaks to this intrinsic, built-in value of all children. All human beings from the moment of conception are made in the image of God and deserve a chance for life. Next, the psalmist lays out their capacity for great personal value as a benefit for the parents. He compares them to, to arrows as like tools crafted for a great purpose and defenders of the family business and rest bringers who through their multiplication transcends their parents' limitations. Children are valuable gifts from God. But if we're going to talk about children as gifts and the joys of that, we also need to, for a moment, recognize that there's also pain when we talk about children. Whether due to infertility or singleness, some of you may be wondering, well, where was my gift of children? Where's the, the fruit of my womb or my wife's womb? Where's my reward and my arrows to send out against the enemy? I was doing premarital counseling with a young couple, and in one session, we, we discussed this passage, and, and the bride-to-be got very serious and very sullen and said, my biggest fear in our marriage is that I will not be able to have children. And I've walked with people, very close friends, who have walked through that journey, and it is painful. And, and so what I did is I, I turned to, in, in, in compassion and a little bit of fear and trembling myself, because I know this can be so sensitive, to another psalm that I think is a great companion when we're reading about these great blessings in Psalm 127, is also to remember this from Psalm 113, where the psalmist writes, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And then I pointed out to her these two important truths from these two Psalms. 127 showing that the Lord builds the home and he does so through children born to their parents. And then Psalm 113 shows that the Lord builds the home with children not born to their parents. You see, what's most important in both is that the Lord builds the home. God's the one who blesses and brings the joy. And I personally have seen homes built with birthed children and adopted children and foster children and God children and most importantly, spiritual children who have come to be in Christ's family through them. And again, this isn't to downplay the pain. It's very real, but it's to say that please, please trust that God has more than one way to build a home and to fill you with joy through himself. But as I said before, while this psalm tells us some important things about kids, it's primarily a picture intended to tell us something about our work. Another pastor wrote that this psalmist is praising the effortless and important work of making children. He says, what do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. It requires our participation, but hardly in a form we would call work. 
Now, I want you to notice that he's not talking about the effortlessness of raising children. That is very hard work. I know, on this sabbatical, there was a few different times where I thought, you know what, why don't I go back to work for a couple of days? Fathering is difficult. It's hard work. But the psalmist instead is talking specifically about this work of conception where we joyfully do our part and trust God for the miracle of life. And here's the idea. God does that same thing with our work. God makes work fertile. And he does so by making work not just about the thing that we're doing, though we've already said that is meaningful and important. It's also about the, the people and the new life and the multiplication that can come as we do our work. To put it another way, our work with God is not only for God's glory, but it's also for God's mission. Just as he fills a house with physical children, he is seeking to fill his house with children of God. John 1:12. but to all who did receive, talking about Jesus, who all did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Christ then comes as the ultimate fruit of the womb, the ultimate arrow against the enemy that enables all of us to become children of God. And God wants to fill his house through you and through your work, bringing us right back to the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In the same way that God has called each of us to a vocation, a work that blesses the world for his glory, God has also called us all to a mission, that of making disciples. Here at South Shores, we say growing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ by reaching the lost, growing them in faith and obedience, and empowering others to do the same. I'm specifically talking about here leveraging appropriate opportunities to make disciples through the relationships we have in our life. God desires you to bring new life into people who will then multiply because he has placed you in the job or in the work or even in the retirement that you have right now. And that begins by doing your work well for God's glory, but it continues as you look to say, how can Christ's mission be worked out through what I'm doing? God makes work fertile. So work with God for his mission. Now some more questions to ponder. Where and how can I do my work most strategically to advance the mission of God? How can I be of greatest service to others, particularly as a bridge in order to share the gospel? And who has God placed around me that I can help them take one more step closer to Christ in my family, in my office, in my church, in my neighborhood. God makes work fertile, so work with God for his mission. Now, once you imagine we're on this road trip and the, the music just finished talking about everybody's working for the weekend or something like that, and it brings this, this topic into your mind. Why am I working? Is it meaningful? And who's it for? Is it futile or is it fertile? And those self-reflection questions I pointed to you on the back, that's a, a good place to start this week. And I hope you'll carve out some time to just, with yourself, work through them and then to find someone else and talk about and share your answers and what it brought about. But I want you to be careful because it's not just about coming up with the right answers. You see, at the very beginning of your psalm, it says, of Solomon. He wrote this psalm. Solomon, King Solomon, wise King Solomon had all the right answers, but it didn't touch his life. 
So his buildings didn't last, his city came to ruin, and his family was filled with broken arrows. Ultimately, the fertility of our work, its ability to bear fruit, does not come from having the right strategy, but from having the right Savior. Jesus put it this way in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We have lots of questions to work through, and they're good ones, but most important one is this. Are you connected to the vine? Are you in Jesus? It's not just how we start the Christian life. It's the breathing of every single day, and it's the only way to bear fruit. Your work doesn't have to be meaningless. God takes our work from futility to fertility. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we are humbled that in your work that you have given us work to do, to be a reflection of you in creative artistry and the ability to, to bless others and help them, but Lord, also to be able to tell others of who this Jesus is, why we worship him, what he's done for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would walk us through these questions. Most importantly, that you'd help us to, say, to see that in order to reach out, in order to bless others, we need to reach deeper in to love Jesus more, know him more, follow him more. And as we abide, you bear the fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.